The gospel according to John, we're calling it the invisible made visible. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh. The infinite becomes, we just sang about this, the infinite becomes finite, the immortal becomes mortal, and dies a grueling death and rises from the dead. The invisible made visible. John chapter 10. What I want to do is, it says 32 through 42, but I want to start at verse 22. So John chapter 10, verse 22. Well, let's, let's get a flavor of, you know, a feel of what the story's about. We're going to jump in in verse 32 this morning, but I want to read the whole, the whole section here. So John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered to them, It is not written in your law, I said you are gods. If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands, verse 40. He went away, Jesus went away, again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. Interesting, the way this closes. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word uh, this morning. So kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. We are in John 10. The Apostle John, under divine inspiration, or as the scripture says, divine expiration, Paul tells Timothy that all scriptures breathe out by God, and God is using John the Apostle to give an eyewitness testimony who was there in the perfect life, his ministry, the atoning death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning in chapter 10, we're coming to a conclusion, uh, to a conclusion of a long public ministry where Jesus and these religious leaders are, are locking horns often. They're locking horns because Jesus is not only showing himself who he really is, that, but the Jewish people are not getting it. They, they, they keep going back to this one major issue that we have seen over and over again is who really is this one called Jesus from Nazareth? His claims of divinity and deity and equality with the Father. Over and over again, which didn't surprise us because John in his, in his 
purpose statement says that he wrote these things down for us to read them even today so that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And by believing, you'll have life in his name. So the question, who is Jesus, is, is of, of great importance. No small consequences. Because who Jesus is, is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. And now in John chapter 10, as we come to the conclusion of this portion of Scripture, things begin to slow down. I'll tell you that right now. In John chapter 11, we see the rising of Lazarus. Um, Jesus is going to be teaching a little bit, but not like this open form that we see now. John chapter 13, uh, excuse me, John chapter 12, um, he is teaching in a little bit to the Greeks or asking him some questions. So John 11, he's with a few people. John 12, John 13, we're in the upper room. Man, it, it's already Good Friday, two chapters away. And we're going to see this whole discourse from chapter 13, I think, to chapter 17 of this teaching of Jesus in the upper room the Friday before he was being crucified. So things just really slow down. And although we're coming to the end of this, this section of Scripture, I think it's important that we understand that Jesus is constantly not only locking horns with his Jewish people, but he's loving them. He is patient with them. He is, he is constantly asking questions and answering questions and talking to them about who he really is. And, and maybe you're here this morning, and even though you have not come to understand, but you're asking questions, God is patient toward you as well. And God, I pray that it's not too late. If you're here, it's not too late just like it wasn't too late for them, to hear the word of God, to let the spirit of God and let the word of God bring you to a place. And that's my prayer for you this morning. And and I've been praying throughout this time. We're gonna see uh, Jesus just revealing himself that you come to an understanding of who he is as the Christ, as the Messiah, so that you can have eternal life. That's my prayer this morning for you. Look at our text, John chapter 10. We read in verse 22, it's the feast of what? Dedication. That's very important. We'll see in a moment. The Feast of Dedication. We call it Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. If you remember from last week, there was a man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes, and he was in Jerusalem, and he conquered Jerusalem in 167 B.C. and desecrated the temple. He captured Jerusalem. He went into the temple area, desecrated the altar of burnt offerings, and sacrificed the pig there at the temple. A few years later, the Jewish people rose up against him, and in 164 B.C., under John Maccabeus, they recaptured Jerusalem, the temple area, and set apart or reconsecrated, dedicated the altar to the one true God again. It was in 164 B.C. And so Jesus is in this time of dedication, this eight-day celebration of that victory, and we see in chapter uh, 10 and verse 24 that the Jews confronted him. Well, gathered around him, the, the actual work is they encircled him. And they asked him a question, and it's important. How long, verse 24, will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that is coming? Tell us plainly. And Jesus says, listen, all that I've said, all that I've did bears witness to me. And then Jesus says, but you won't come to me. Not only in your refusal, but because you're not part of the sheep. You're not part of the sheepfold that he talks about in John 10. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Remember, anyone who comes through me as the door of the sheep will go and find pastures and be safe. They'll, they'll, they'll eat 
the sustenance of eternal life, and they will be safe while they're in the sheepfold if I am the door. He says, I am the shepherd, he says in John 10, who lays down his life for the sheep. So he's using this sheep metaphor to talk about the door. He's the door the way to get in. He's the shepherd who lays down his life to protect the sheep and to, to save his sheep, to, to secure his sheep. And then in verse 27, as we get closer to our passage this morning, he says, the sheep hear my voice. They know me, I know them. They hear my voice, they follow me. And look what it says. They are secure, verse 27 and 28, in the hands of the omnipotent hands, excuse me, the omnipotent hands of the Father and the Son. That's how we ended last week. We say, well, how can he be in one hand and yet he's in the other hand? He's in the Son's hand, he's in the Father's hand. He says, they're in both hands. And he says in verse 29 very clearly how that happens. My Father, who has given them to me, see what it says? Chapter 10, verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, here, here Jesus, here's the sheep, I have them in my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, they're in Jesus' hand in the earlier verse. Now they're in the Father's hand. How can that be? Well, we are one. The Father and I are one. And that sparked off another round, the final round of controversy. So we look through this passage of Scripture together. I, I see this, this, as I vision this passage, I see this passage as, as like a courtroom drama. There's witnesses, there's testimony, there's evidence, and there's a verdict. So I said, all right, well, that'll be our outline. The testimony, the evidence, and the verdict. If you're following us, that, it's, simple, it's simple as that, okay? So let's look at first the testimony. When Jesus tells the religious leaders that his sheep are secured in the Father's hand and in the Son's hand, sparked off this, this controversy. I and the Father are one, he says. How can that be? When they're in my hands, they're in the Father's hand. When they're in the Father's hand, they're in my hands. And he says, I and the Father are one. Now, that sparks off this major problem. There are multiple cults that deny the deity of Christ. They have at least three problems. Number one, Jesus himself is claiming, I and the Father are one. Over and over, we'll see in a minute, claiming, I and the Father are one. The early disciples, we'll see when we get to John 20, Thomas sees the risen Lord falls down on a, a Jewish boy all his life, monotheistic, one God, the Shema, the Lord is one falls on his face and cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus calls it faith. Jesus says he's God. Thomas makes a declaration. And the religious leaders, those who hate Jesus, knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying not that we're just one, that we have the same purpose and goals. What he's saying is we are one. We have the same divine authority and omnipotence that the Father has, I have. When they're in my hand, they're secure. When they're in the Father's hand, they're secure. This task, this will of preserving the sheep, keeping them secure in the the hand of God, Jesus says we're one. Look at verse 33. They understood. It is not for your works that we're going to stone you. I mean, they got stones. It's for blasphemy. Because you, verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus said, no, 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 put the stone. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Listen, I grew up in the synagogue. I understand the scriptures. I'm not saying that. That's not what Jesus does. He is being charged because of his testimony of making himself out to be God. It's not the first time. 
It's not the first time that Jesus talks about his one in essence and one in nature as the God of the Old Testament. It's not the first time. Chapter 5, he heals a man on a Sabbath. And he says, as I'm healing this man, I'm walking in step with my father because my father, the creator, God, is working as well. We're both working together. Chapter 5, verse 17. My father's working and I'm working. And it says the Jews tried to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, because it was a Sabbath day, but even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The gospel according to John keeps coming back to this for a reason. This is, this is extremely important, that we understand who Jesus truly is. When he says, my father, he's not talking about it in a creative sense, like, you know, he's the father of us all. If that were the case, if that were the case, the Jews would have agreed. In a creative sense, God is the Father of us all. But what they understood Jesus to be saying, again, he doesn't say he's not saying it, when he calls himself, this is my Father, like Father, like Son, he's talking of being of equal essence with the Father. It involves equality. It's not just breaking the Sabbath. That was bad enough. But when he calls himself, when he says, my Father, they understood exactly. That's why they wanted to kill him. And that's why they do kill him. Now they got stones in their hands because of the testimony of Jesus. I and the Father are one. In my hands, in the Father's hand, in the Father's hands, and in my hands. Look down at verse 34 of the testimony. I love this. Jesus is like, all right, you don't understand. Let's, let's have a Bible study. Get your Bibles open. Psalm 82. So verse 34, this is what John, Jesus is going to point to Psalm 82. He's going to be a, a good Bible teacher here. He's opening up his Bible. Jesus says to them, is it not written? He's talking about the law. Talking about the Old Testament. Is it not written in your law? I think he's trying to, not that it's not his law, he's trying to distance himself from these people who are unbelieving, hard-hearted people in their approach to the law. Isn't it written in your law in the Old Testament? I said, talking about the, 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 uh, God, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am God? Interesting. Interesting. First thing you need to understand about this argument is Jesus is using a very distinctive, regular argument in that day, rabbinic argument from the greater, excuse me, from the lesser to the greater. Start out arguing the lesser, ending up in the greater. It was a very formal, rabbinic way in which you have arguments. And what he's saying is in Psalm 82... Like a good Bible teacher, keeping things in context, if you read Psalm 82, that's what Jesus is pointing to. He's talking about judges in Israel, or even all of Israel as a, as a people. Judges in Israel, or all of Israel, are called God's little g, because they're not divine. He's not talking about the divineness of them in Psalm 82. The psalm has to do with them acting and standing in the place of God as judges. When we judge... And God has given us the divine right to do so as judges, and he does. They're acting in the place of God, and that should, that should be, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, you should judge people very carefully. And what he's saying is there's Israel judges in Israel representing and, 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 and standing in the place of justice, exercising God's authority. You read Psalm 82, that's what it's about. In fact, the psalm is really a rebuke because the judges in Israel were not acting appropriately and God is rebuking them in Psalm 82. You're standing in the place of authority. You're standing in the place of, uh, of judging and you're judging 
disgracefully and you will die, he says, like mere men. It's a rebuke. Psalm 82 is a rebuke toward the judges of Israel. What's so interesting, though, as I was studying this passage, is there are many places in the Old Testament where God calls mere men who stand in this place God's small g. I didn't know that. In fact, I won't even mention them all, but Exodus 4, God comes to Moses and says that Aaron's going to speak to the people on your behalf, Moses. And this is what it says. And he, Aaron, shall be your mouth, Moses, and he and you shall be a God to him. Well, it doesn't mean that he's God, capital G, but in the sense of standing in the place and speaking for God. Exodus 7, the Lord says to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and you'll be like God to Pharaoh. In other words, stand in my place, speak my words, and you'll be like God to Pharaoh. Exodus 21, Exodus 24, the place of judgment is called Elohim, where the judges sat. Very interesting. And Jesus is pointing out from the, from, the, from the lesser to the greater that if mere men who stand in the place of God and are called God's small g, how much more greater am I whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world be called the Son of God? That's the argument. Leon Morris succinctly writes, Jesus is not classing himself among men. He separates and distinguishes himself from men. It's from the lesser to the greater. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. He's, he's saying, look, if you call them God's small g's, and yet God has separated me and sanctified me, and I reveal to him perfectly, why can't we call me the Son of God? Why do you have a problem with the Son of God statement? I mean, Jesus has unique authority, not just to be judge over Israel. We have seen this already. Jesus said he's judge of the world. Jesus is not just someone who, who's proclaiming the word of God, We saw in John 1 that Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now look at verse 35, what he says. He called them God to whom the word of God came and what? Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Do you understand what he's saying? Jesus takes this obscure verse in, in the psalm and says, Scripture cannot be broken. What happens when we give a promise? What happens when we give our word on something and we don't show up? I I will meet you tomorrow. I will be there. I will help you. I will pay back every penny that I owe you tomorrow, and then you don't show up. That's a broken promise. Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken. Everything in Scripture is true. Everything in Scripture is trustworthy and cannot be broken. Now, here's something to think about. As I was reading this, I'm thinking, what does that really say to us? Is the scripture, is the word of God shaping your worldview? Are you understanding things that are going on in our country, things that are going on in our, in our communities, things that are even going on within you? Is the scripture foundational to your worldview? You know, we're just in a, we're just in a crazy time right now in America. Are, are we abandoning the worldview of this book? Are we so caught up and wrapped up in what could possibly happen that we fail to see the stories already written. Do you, when you have struggles and problems and questions and answers, are you saturated with Scripture so that the Word of God becomes your foundational understanding of your own heart and mind? Or are you, are you, are you find yourself wandering around? Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. 
Jesus loved the Scripture. Jesus knew the Scripture. Jesus meditated on the Scripture. And if you're saying, yeah, well, he, he's God incarnate, of course. Well, I don't think they downloaded it into his brain. I don't think Jesus woke up one day and said, okay, Father, and they just, you know, boop, download Scripture. I wish that was the case. That would be great. The Bible says that Jesus grew like every other boy. He went to synagogue. He studied the Scripture. He had probably better insight than us. I'll give him that. <laughs> right? But he learned the Scripture. He studied the Scriptures. He read the Scriptures. He loved the Scripture. He meditated on the Scripture. It was important to him. He's the Son of God. How much more important is us? And what, you know what else is cool about this text? What feast is going on right now? Feast of dedication, right? The reconsecration of the temple that was desecrated by pagans, unbelievers. What does Jesus say in verse 36? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You're blaspheming, but I said, because I said I'm the son of God. Jesus is already the true and better Passover feast. We saw that. He's the greater. He's the Lamb of God who died. He's the true and better what? Feast of booths. We saw that. He tabernacled among us. And now what he's saying, I'm the true and better consecrated one. We're celebrating the consecration and the dedication of the burnt offerings, but the one who's truly consecrated and set apart is before you. In the Old Testament, when the Bible speaks about consecration, it's the same word, hagiazo, in the Greek. It means to be sanctified. It means to be set apart from sin, dedicated to God, set apart from sin, set apart to the Lord. The the Bible is really clear that, that God is the ultimate sanctified one. He is the one that is perfectly spotless. Um, He's the one that is holy. He is otherness. And other things like the showbread, and other things in the temple get their derivative attribute from that. So in other words, when God sanctifies, not the same way we sanct- he sanctifies himself, apart from everything, but we have been set apart as people of God. We've been set apart from sin, we've been forgiven, and we're set apart for the glory and the mission and the beauty of Christ. So what Jesus is saying here, and what he's pointing to, I love it, is that the real and the final and the crucial act of setting something apart was exclusively the setting apart of the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, who was on mission to die for sinners like us. And Jesus is saying, listen, you, you, we're celebrating the sanctification of, and this rededication of the temple. Well, the true temple is here. The one who's truly sanctified, completely sinless life, and been set apart for the one glorious mission of dying on the cross. So listen, you call mere men gods? And yet, here I am, acting and functioning on behalf of God himself, I have unique authority to be called the son of God, unique of the same nature and the same uh, essence, and you are bewildered? That's, that's the argument. I've been set apart, I've been commissioned, I've been exercising authority and power. So Jesus is not denying his testimony. What he's doing is he's denying that his false testimony We see this testimony over and over again. Now look at the evidence with me. The Bible study, this road to nowhere, was just enough for them to get rocked back on their heels and Jesus goes right back to the evidence, right back to his works. Look at verse 32. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? You got rocks in your hand. Which one are you going to stone me? Now look at verse 37. If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, if you're not going to listen to my testimony, if you're not going to heed to the things that I'm saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. The works that all I've been doing is privy for all of you to see. You've seen my works. I've done them out in public. You've seen the evidence right before you, and that evidence points to the fact that I am one with the Father. Now, Jesus did a lot of things. I am sure that Jesus, um, in his love and his mercy and his kindness toward people, was showing the works of the Father as God is loving and kind and merciful. Absolutely. But I think the thrust of this argument that Jesus is making is not so much his tenderness and his love toward others. I think it has to do with the miracles that he was doing. I think he's pointing like you see the work of God. You Jews say you know God. You have the scriptures. You worship God. You know his works. You see my works. And they fail to make the connection of, okay, we see what Jesus is doing. We know what God the Father is doing. And we've seen the work in creation and other things. And they have not come to the realization that the two works are the same. That's, that's the thrust of their argument. And, and their unbelief, he said, would be justified if Jesus didn't back up his claims, but he did. He backed it up. Who do you know can tell somebody, God, I, Jesus, I forgive you of your sins, and to prove that, I'm going to heal you? Who do you know walks on water and raises the dead? I mean, all the things that Jesus did. Who takes two fish, five loaves of bread, and feeds 12,000 people? Only God does that. Only God raises the dead. Only God gives life. Only God forgives completely and freely. Only God is the one that can say your sins are truly forgiven. What is so remarkable, again, is his patience toward them. You know, you read this, you think at some point it's like, you know what? I'm done with you guys. And Jesus is pressing. Peter tells that the Lord is not slow to keep his promises. There's some count slowness, but patient. God is patient toward you. Listen, God is patient toward you this morning. God is patient toward you, y'all, all of us, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that all should reach repentance. I pray that as we look at the works and the words of Christ, he will enlighten you to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is and that we would bow down and worship him, that the spirit of God would bring insight and faith into our lives. For his works were the works of God. They were witnesses into the window of, of, of who he truly is. The divinity, the, 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 the deity, the equality, it points us to who Christ is. Verse 38. What do the works do that you may know? You saw the testimony. Look at the evidence that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The words know and understand, same Greek word, different tenses, so that you may know. The first one is in the, uh, pres- uh, the past tense, so that you come to know. And then the present, that you may keep on knowing, knowing more fully. Come to know who I am and then to come and continue to grow and know fully that we are one, union with the Father. And he's back where he started in verse 30. The Father is in me, I am in the Father, I and the Father are one. Verse 30, see the connection? This verse and where it started in verse 30. They see the evidence and they fail to see. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm going to tell you. Hundreds. 800 years before Jesus Christ came in that stable, in that, in that trough, in, in that place of birth in Bethlehem, 
The prophet Isaiah and other prophets made it very clear that when the Messiah would come, when, when God would visit his people, there will be works being done. It's not like this is brand new to the Jewish leaders of his day. Isaiah, 50, excuse me, Isaiah 35 says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will save you. God will come. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So get ready, Israel. When the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak. Miraculous things will happen. So when the anointed one comes, there'll be power, there'll be authority. And everyone will know that he is not just a mere man. He is God himself who had visited his people. I mean, up to this point, Jesus heals the blind. Jesus tells a a woman in Samaritan everything he knows about her. He heals a man at the pool of Siloam who's been an invalid all his life. Jesus said, look, I've done many miracles and at, last, and at least acknowledge that I've done those things and they point to who I truly am. Family, here's the problem of the Jewish people and even us today. We like our place of power. We want our place of control. We're prideful people who don't want to relinquish authority and power in our lives. There are those who have written, maybe some of you are in school and some of the liberal scholars and and, uh, people in academia, whether it's Sunni or wherever it is, that will teach you that those miracles didn't happen, that the tomb is not empty, that people don't rise from the dead, that Jesus really didn't walk on water. All these miracles didn't really happen. It's the reason is, and the reason why they say that is the same thing, it's pride. Because if you deal with and and you come to the reality of this eyewitness testimony, of what happened, you got to deal with the empty tomb. You got to deal with the one who said, alive, arise, and wakes up a young girl who's been dead for three days. Or Lazarus we'll see next week. You have to deal with it. Mere men don't do that. And if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if he is God incarnate, if he has come and truly died and the tomb is empty, you have to face that. We all have to face that. And we have to lay down our lives if, we come to realization that we're not God, God's God. And that's what he's done for us, and there's really only one thing for us to do, is lay our swords down because he laid down his life for us. The truth is, the skeptics don't want to repent. They'd rather hold control of their own lives rather than bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they attack miracles, they attack the New Testament, they don't want to deal with the truth of what the eyewitness people are telling us. Now, reminding me of a passage of Scripture, and I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 1.18. We studied 1 Corinthians a while back. This is what Paul writes. Reminded me so much of where we're at right now with this text. For the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy, God talking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And, And the discernment I will thwart. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. They want to hold on to their power. Folly to the Gentiles, non-Jews. They want to revel, revel in their wisdom. But to those who are being called Jew and Greek, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
please, please, don't let your pride stand in your way of recognizing who Jesus truly is because it's verdict time. Look at verse 31. Jesus' testimony, Jesus' works, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Stones again. They've done it before. Stoning was their verdict. They think he was committing blasphemy, so he must die. The truth is, they were the ones committing blasphemy. Their unbelief, their failure to recognize Jesus as the Christ, one with and equal to the Father. And family, it is still blasphemy today. Believing and uh, unbelieving and denying who Jesus is, calling him just a mere man, is still the sin of blasphemy. You know, John is just a, a wonderful, insightful writer. And he, and, he, and he writes things in certain ways that we have to kind of look behind a little bit of what he's trying to say. And what's so cool about this text, in verse 22, it says it was wintertime. In verse 31, it says they picked up stones. Now, I'm sure John is just saying it's winter, they picked up stones to kill Jesus. But it is kind of cool to observe that the words and the works of Jesus fell on cold-hearted hearers. Just as cold as any blistery winter morning. And the stones in their hands was just as hard as the hard-hearted folks. Hard-hearted folks who held those rocks in their hands. And it says, they tried to arrest him, verse 39. But he escaped from their hands. John 10, 18, Jesus said, I laid down my life. No, no one takes my life. He's not out of control. He's in control of his, of his death, burial, and resurrection. No one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. The authority I've gotten was from my father. This charge was given to me. I lay down my life. I take my life. And it's not going to happen until the time is right with the father and the son. It will happen. But it will happen on God's timetable, not their timetable. Jesus was not this helpless victim. Jesus had authority over his life his death, and his resurrection. Who says that? But check this out. You would think, all right, the verdict has come. We stone him, kill him. We want to get rid of him. He's blaspheming. And you think the story just ends there. And then off to chapter 11, the rising of Lazarus. And all of a sudden, we have this verse in here, verse 40. He went away, crossed the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What? It's just like, oh, by the way, just want to give you this little piece. I mean, why does John give us this location? He doesn't, have to, he doesn't give us everything. It says uh, at the end of the book, I couldn't write everything down. The whole world wouldn't, couldn't contain it. But John, the apostle, decides to put this little piece in right here. And it's not, it's not by accident. It, it, he put it here for a reason. With people actually coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the contrast is glaring. So let's look at why would he do that? Why would he put down a different verdict People are coming to faith. Why did he put down there was no testimony of Jesus? It was the testimony of John. There was no even evidence. There was no signs, he says. And yet many people, their verdict of their life was they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why put that there? Well, I don't know. 
I have an idea. You can consider it yourself. Why would John do that? Well, let's look at the testimony again. What was the testimony of John the Baptist? Well, we have it. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Apostle who wrote this is different than John the Baptist. Two different Johns, right? Just like we have a, lot, like a ton of Chris's around here, right, Chris? This is the testimony of John. When the Jews and the priests and the Levites went to Jerusalem, they went to him and they said, who are you? Give us testimony, who are you? He said, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ, because they would want to know, are you the Christ? And they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Well, who are you? Give us testimony. We need an answer. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's not about me, it's the way of the Lord. As the prophet has said, I baptize with water, but among you, talking about Jesus, one you do not know, when he comes, he's straps of his sandals. I am not worthy to untie the lowest thing you can do. I can't even untie his shoes. I submit to you this morning that people believed in this location because the testimony of John the Baptist was not about John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist was John pointing to who really mattered, and it was the otherness of John, his humility pointing back to someone else. John wasn't taking glory in himself. Chapter 5, the religious leaders could not come to faith because they saw glory from one another. John the Baptist is saying, I must decrease, he said, and he, Jesus, must increase. He took a back seat. He pointed to Christ. Listen, there's no way, there's no way you will come to faith. There's no way that you'll be able to stand Jesus and who he is if you don't become humble. There's no way, unless you come to the place that you are without hope. There's no way to earn forgiveness. There's no way to earn favor with God. There's no way that you could possibly get in the presence of God with your sin-stained hands but through Jesus Christ. That takes humility. It's, it's, it's recognizing I can't do this. I need someone to do it for me. I can never live a righteous life. I'm a sinner. It takes someone who can, and that's Jesus, who lived a perfect life, the life you could never live. Dr. Tim Keller tells a story. It's about a man who was in a canoe, and, and he was in Maine. He went to Maine. And he went over a dam thinking that it would be, it wasn't a very large dam, but that he'd be okay as he got onto the other side, but he overturned. It was early spring, the water was very cold, and he knew, the man knew as he fell out of, into the water that unless he got out quickly, he would, could possibly die of hyperthermia, hyperthermia. As he went over the dam, there was what's called a backwash, the backwash is this powerful circular movement under the water in the base of the dam. And he tried to swim away, but the backwash was pulling him under, pulling him under, pulling him under for five minutes, kept pulling him under until finally he died. Out of breath, hypothermia kicked in and he passed away and he died. And as soon as he died and he stopped fighting, the current took him out and popped him out. And within five or six seconds, 10 feet away from the backwash. The solution to his problem. If all he had done was stop struggling and what he thought could possibly help him was actually hurting him, it was counterintuitive until he let go, he wouldn't have been saved. 
The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a person. That way leads only to death. We can't save ourselves. We think we can. We try like heck. We can't save ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. We need a Savior. God is only for weak people. I hear that all the time. But as long as we keep trying, you could try with the most strength you have. You could try with as hard as you possibly can. You could fight that current all you want until you release and hear the current call of Christ to come, to humble yourself, to believe the words in which he spoke, the miracles in which he did, all point to the person of Jesus Christ. He's alive today in heaven, seated on his throne. His spirit is working among us, calling us to let go of pride and to come to Christ. That's the testament. Look, look what it says, the work of Christ. And, and they said, John did no sign. So John spoke in humility, come John did no signs. Now, we've been talking about signs. We're like, you know, signs, signs point us to Christ. Here, there's no signs being done. Why is that? Why does John put all his miracles, look at the works, look at these words, everything I've done points, and then we get to this passage of Scripture, and it's like uh, there were no signs being done. Why is that? Because signs will never save you. Only Jesus can. Signs will never say, if we learn anything from John, John 2, John 3, John 4, signs are pointers. You get wrapped up in the power, in this experiential power that's going on and miss the person. The people of the Jewish people who followed Jesus were caught up in all that he did and they were following signs and Jesus said, I don't trust myself to them because all they want to do is get fed, all they want to do is watch the signs. They're not trusting in me. And here the Jewish people see the signs and refuse to trust in Christ. Why? Because signs don't save you, only Jesus does. Classic example, if you know the story in Luke 16, if you remember the story, there's a rich man who's in hell. And, and he cries out to Father Abraham and he says, tell Lazarus, the one in, in, who's poor, who's in heaven, tell him to take one drop of water and bring it to me because I am suffering in hell. Abraham goes, it doesn't work that way. You can't go from this side to that side. It doesn't work that way. And the man cries out and says, all right, well, I have five brothers, Father Abraham. Please send someone so that they know and don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have the scripture. Let them hear them. No, 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 Father Abraham. Someone comes back from the dead. If a miracle happens, they will repent. He says, no, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. You hear what he's saying? You have the true, unbroken, trustworthy testimony of the word of God. That is sufficient. Because truly, seeing Jesus is what's most important as the son of God, as the Messiah, the one who could forgive you. And look what it says. John did no other signs, but everything that John said with this man was true. In verse 42, many believed in him there. What a great story. What a great ending to see all this conflict, all this issues going on. And then John says, but the Baptist preached Christ. No signs were given. Everything he said, they believed, and they trusted in Jesus as their only hope. So I want to invite you this morning. As we close in this section of scripture, there are a lot of people who want to kill him. There's a lot of people that love him. There are a lot of people that want to stone him. There are a lot of people that want to respond to him in faith. 
Where are you this morning? Are you at a crossroad this morning? Do you understand that Jesus, the Son of God, leaves the place of glory by the Father's side, comes down at the person of Jesus Christ, and John, this beloved disciple, writes these things down for us so we can see the beauty, glory, and wonder of Christ. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you've never come to faith, I pray that you will see the beauty of Christ. You'll see the words, the testimony, the evidence, and come to Christ. Because the greatest story, the greatest evidence, is the death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. The death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. And, and when we come to him, he embraces us. He says, no one, no one, no one can snatch them out of my hands. There's a story. Um, I think I wrote it down in my notes. Yeah, here it is. Listen to this story and we'll close. Um, there, was a, there was a gentleman in London, and there was, uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a poor man, he was a beggar, he, he traveled all around, and one day as he found himself in the city of London, he's looking over the, 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 the river there in London, and uh, he, he's just standing at attention, and he's crying, and he's crying, and he's crying, and he's weeping. And it, one thing he keeps saying over and over again was, um, you were right, you were right, you were right, Davy, you were right. And somebody came along and said, you know, sir, are you okay? What's going on? You seem to be very upset. You seem to be weeping. You're crying. You're distraught. You know, what's going on? You, you keep saying, you know, you were right, Davy. You were right. And the man said, you see the horse and carriages going by? Yes. That's Dr. David Livingston, missionary doctor, proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the man said, yes, I know. The funeral procession is going on this morning. And the man said, yes, but did you know that I grew up with him? I was in the same town with him. I was in the same Sunday school class with him year after year after year. And one day, as a small boy, the teacher said to everyone, you're at the crossroad. What are you going to do with Jesus? And it was then that David Livingston said, I'm going to trust him all my life. He said, but I turned my back on everything and walked away. And here I am, years later, crying. You were right, David. You were right, David. You were right, David. Don't be like that man. Make your decision today. We don't have tomorrow. Make your decision today. Jesus Christ has made himself known clearly through the testimony, through the works, and through an empty tomb. He's alive today. Trust him. Repent of your sins. Believe on him. And if you're a Christian this morning, this applies to you too. This applies to you too. Keep coming back to that place. Jesus goes back to the Jordan where it all began. Sometimes we need to go back where it all began with with the Father's arms around us, hugging us and loving us in the gospel. Sometimes we need to go back to where the works and the gifts of Christ come into our lives and we're embraced by the extended hands of Jesus, all that he has done in our place. So whether you're a Christian this morning or not a Christian, become a Christian today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's revel in his love for, the, for us in the gospel. Father, thank you so much that when we are secured, we are secured in your hands. Lord, no one and nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can take us away from the security of knowing you and loving you, Lord. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, a life we could never live, and died an atoning death for us as a gift. Father, I ask that your spirit would work in our hearts even now. And maybe there's someone here that has never trusted Christ, never understood the, the, the reality of who he says he is. God incarnate dies, rises, and forgives sinners. 
Father, pour out your spirit. Help us to trust him today. Believe on him today. Put our swords down, our pride down, and walk with him today. And Father, as believers in Christ, encourage us as we sing. Strengthen us, Lord, that we are secured in your hands. And we ask all this for your glory, to make much of your name. In Jesus we pray.